0: Please.
1: Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkandstuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon to pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching... The video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Stuff channel. On YouTube, that's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up, tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the Funkandstuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here. Truth and Rhythm shirts show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to FunkCenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership Keyboardist, composer, producer, Wayne Vaughn. Happy to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you here. i got to say a little bit more about you than that, though, Wayne. You... Oh, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Because during his, uh, your more than 40 years as a professional musician, you've recorded, performed, and composed for the Brothers Johnson, Earth, Wind & Fire, Patti LaBelle, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Brian McKnight, Kanye West, and The Emotions, the latter of which he met his longtime wife, Wanda Hutchinson, who was an absolute delight as a recent guest on the Truth and Rhythm show. One of Vaughn's most famous creations was the ultra-infectious 1981 pop-funk song, Let's Groove, which was one of Earth, Wind & Fire's biggest crossover hits. Wayne, glad to have you here. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here.
1: So, you know, as we're doing this, of course, we were talking before we came on air. We're sort of in a lockdown. I'm in uh, North Carolina. You're in California. By the time people see this, hopefully the lockdowns will be over. It'll be in a few weeks, Uh, but for right now, it's been uh, quite interesting to say the least.
0: We're living in the moment and hopefully by the time this airs, everyone will go, what lockdown.
1: let's hope so back to life uh as somewhat normal again
0: yes somewhat i don't know if it's going to change it forever the way we used to the two is going to be the transition but i tell you let's just keep going and find out what it has in store you know
1: yeah so you're uh, in the los angeles area correct
0: yes i'm in today i'm in glendale california at my house and um We were upstairs trying to get the camera together, so that was the outdoor view. Now I'm in the dungeon east where we record the live stuff, and the brains is in the uh, dungeon west. So I'm just down here. I'll be down here after we finish today. Just, you know, I'm using this opportunity uh, to be creative and, you know, keep your mind clear and just let it flow,
1: let it flow yeah you gotta roll with it man no other choice no
0: no the choice and you might as well take advantage we've been delivering a bunch of lemons and i just bought up a lot of organic sugar and got ice cubes got some water so i'm going to make the best lemonade possibly to be made and then i will just you know little lemonade little work little lemonade little work keep it moving
1: sounds like a plan wayne for sure <laughs> um so you ready to uh test those memory banks and uh talk a little music history and lord have mercy
0: (laughs) well i'm sure that by the intro you said more than i remember so you know (laughs) (laughs) we'll take it from there man but uh uh, i see you've done some homework scott so enlighten me
1: (laughs) well hopefully this won't be too hard um now, I know that you, uh, you uh, went to school uh, related to music, I believe, and so forth. So how did you, I think you started out playing flute and then moved to keyboards. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got down a musical path?
0: Well, yes, the um, third grade was a transition. It was a transition for me in my life that started playing flute, and it was like one of my favorite instruments, and I thought I would play flute for the rest of my life and then we had a mishap on campus at my school and our music teacher was no longer there and then it was a few years afterwards got into sixth grade and there was a teacher that you know he loved music so he would teach his students some little songs on the recorder and we would all by our little recorder so i that was my next opportunity and then after that 13 years old, my mom, you know, she bought us a piano, and my sister and I started taking piano lessons, and baby sister came, so she became like, oh, I want to take care of my baby sister. I said, well, I guess I'll keep playing and grooving, and then, you know, speaking of grooving, that song Young Rascals came out with grooving on a Sunday afternoon, and then Walk On By, and then I started hearing these Herbie Hancock songs, and you know, this more and then my brother started bringing jazz records. So it was the transition was playing, you know, traditional like gospel hymns and then going into pop music. And then he brought U.S.E.F. Latif's Live at Peps and John Coltrane Africa Brass. And those two records sent me to oh wow, what's this? So. Kept playing music, and then ninth grade, you know, talent show, so you get your first taste of playing for an audience. That wasn't real, really, the first time. Ninth grade, and it was great. So I was like, "Oh man, this is fun." But I still wasn't like considering going to, you know, considering going to be a musician until I became um, around 16. And 16 did it when he had a class called guidance and driver's education. Those were the two splits. So you learn how to drive a car and guidance was, what do you wanna be when you grow up? So I was good in math, I was good in science and I was okay in music, but I loved music more than math and science. So, and I loved math and science, but music just had another kind of charge so I decided at that age I'd be, you know, pursue music and then I started trying to learn everything I could about music. And some of my LA boys here, one of my teachers told us, you keep doing music like that, you're gonna go crazy. Cause we were just, everything came out of our mouths was music. I mean, if you didn't mention or talk about music, you didn't have a conversation with us. So I really, really immersed myself into the music. And then, you know, from uh, learning some harmony and stuff in high school then went to college and really learned at lacc and then left lacc and went to ucla where i finished up with a music composition major And then that friday mm -hmm.
1: i'm sorry and you were born in los angeles
0: yes Uh born and raised south central la With you know there was a lot of la musicians that i grew up with you know Charles Mims, who produced a lot of those Patrice Russian albums, and, uh, and of course Patrice herself, and then a lot of my boys. A lot of my, everybody that was around the, the kids became um, famous in their own right. Like Ricky Washington was in our class, Ronald Bruner Jr., well, he was, you know, Ronald, Ronald, Ronald Bruner Sr., his babies. Steven and Ronald became Thundercat and Ronald Bruner Jr., the bass player drummer, respectively. And then Ricky's son is Kamasi Washington, who became this great jazz tenor saxophonist. But all of these guys are also from L.A. So L.A. had just, you know, and Dugu Chancellor, Reggie Andrews, and a lot of different artists of that nature was just, we were like five, ten block radius, at least. So it was music was flowing all around the hood in those days. Larry Nash, when I would Bill Withers, Raymond Pound Stevie Wonder, Michael Stanton, Marvin Gaye, and then you know it was just like so many different things. Of to be in an environment like that, it inspired me to really try to hang in there as much as possible because all of these cats were better than I was. I mean, you know, I was like, but I hung around the baddest cats. So some of that rubbed off, and when I left UCLA on a Friday, Charles Mims had hooked it up to where I got the Brothers Johnson gig. And I wasn't about to graduate. I got out of school like maybe four and a half weeks, almost five weeks early on a quarter system at UCLA, which is basically going to school five weeks and graduating after you know all the stuff. So talked to all my professors. I said, Man, I got a gig with Quincy and dah da da. I was doing great in some classes. Those were the classes that would go, Oh man, I don't know if I can let you go. And the classes I was like not doing good in, and the guy said, Dr. Stevenson at UCLA, he said, oh, You're going to perform? I said, Yeah, Doc, I'm going to perform. He said, what grade do you need? <laughs> so I got out, so I left on a Friday, Saturday. I was in the um, University of Maryland, Parliament Funkadelic, Bootsy, Hamilton Bohannon, and Natalie Cole, Brothers Johnson gig. So I left from playing with my band, which I had a band called Daybreak, going through UCLA, and That band, everybody got drafted to go on a road with other musicians, like the big guys. So that band was like a MBA, from college to MBA kinda thing. But I was mimicking Earth, One, and Fire back then. You know, that was my thing. Our band, I didn't believe in like singing groups, I believed more in instrumental groups like Miles, Herbie, and all that type of stuff. So when I heard Earth, One, and Fire for the first time, I was like, Wait a minute. These cats are playing music. They're, they're musicians and singing like that? Wait a minute. So it just changed the whole dynamic of my approach to music. Fly and Earth, Wind, and Fire were two big things. And James Brown was performing all around where I grew up at the 5 4 Ballroom. Tina Turner, all these, Ike and Tina Turner, all the cats were playing over there, which is literally. My hikes are longer than the walk to there from my house where I grew up. But since I was so much into jazz, I couldn't see the funk side, the R&B side, until later. And then after I uh, got my Fender Rose electric piano, that changed stuff, you know. Mercy, 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 Cannonball. I didn't understand, but that was so much funk and blues and stuff in that, so i started gravitating to that and that's where the funk in my life came from
1: well um i don't know if you're aware but you know i'm also from los angeles so um yeah and i went to ucla for a while in the early 80s as a kinesiology major if you can believe that (laughs) that's what i told my
0: daughter to major I, I believe it. So you go know a Poly Pavilion.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I remember saw... the
0: I remember the kinesiology department over there. <laughs> I,
1: I saw the Commodores play Poly Pavilion in like '78 or something like that. Wait
0: a minute. I was there at that show. I had my son on my neck, carrying. He was two years old, and that was right after Johnny Wilder had the accident. He was a quadriplegic as I, one of the last times I've seen Johnny in the world when we had been on the road. And that year, because we were on the road with the Commodores in 77, 78, a lot. Graham Central Station and Commodores and then Heat Waves after the Emotion Tour that year in 78, Heat Waves opened for the Brothers Johnson, which was you know i think that was their first time coming to la or coming to the states period and they were a reckoning boy they were so i mean pound for pound the group was like you know the groups like we knew in the in the hood they were a good band but individually maybe the musicians weren't as bad as you know the, the musician like we hung around with but at the unit as a unit as that band they were so tight
1: the commodores
0: no um, i'm talking about uh, heat wave
1: heat wave yeah Yeah. i I say i say heat wave at the santa monica civic
0: oh yeah no heat wave was amazing that's why you reminded me of johnny i know i'm going all over the place but you reminded me of johnny that night at the uh at the concert but i was so we were at the same place who would have thought that
1: yeah yeah (laughs) um 1978 if yeah if you were in la i mean our past might have crossed other times than that because i went to hundreds of shows so um.
0: well if you ever went to see Grand central station at the roxy that was still to this day one of the unbelievably energetic super crazy shows i've ever witnessed and i saw graham with sly and you might have went to the forum and i think it was 72. Nah, that, was, that was like the first concert that i ever went to besides going to shelley's manhole and the lighthouse i went to see sly in a group that i never heard of open for named tower power mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until they got to she really wants to go, you know, too. Yeah. And I said, "Guess that band, wait a minute. Oh man, they were. What a show. So I man, what I went through to learn some of this stuff and the bands that I saw and you know, the the bands that I didn't see, like didn't see James Brown, didn't see Hendrix. Oh, I mean, I could've seen Hendrix so many times. But I was into jazz and the other guys on my block that were getting a little more psychedelic with the black lights, they were all into Hendrix. So it was two different factions. They're walking down the street playing Hendrix and I'm walking down the street playing Bobby Hutchison. So you know, but it was, we all got along, we all were cool and I learned a little bit, but I'm at the Hollywood farmer's market Sunday and some music was playing and I wasn't listening to it. And the guitar player did something and I, I went, I said, is that Hendrix? See, that sounds like Hendrix. And I know a little bit about what Hendrix sounds like from the little bit of knowledge that I have on him. But I knew enough to knew that was Hendrix. It's like knowing that's Miles or that's Freddie or something like that. And the guy went and looked on the phone. He said, oh, that's Hendrix. And it was some obscure Hendrix tune. It was just he was in the middle of his solo. And I said, that's either Hendrix or somebody biting like a mofo. <laughs> so that was Hendrix, man. But we had so much music, as you know, in L.A. When did you leave L.A.?
1: Oh, I left in, uh, I was there until 2005. Yeah, I, I went. Oh, my God. I saw so many great shows at the Roxy. I didn't see Graham, but I saw Herbie and George Duke and Rufus and the Ohio Players and Brass Construction <laughs> and on and on and on. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I remember well, too late. But the Brecker Brothers one year, man, I went crazy. They were, and and Michael was playing with a Wawa pedal. First time I heard a saxophone playing with a Wawa mm-hmm. and then he had all that energy. Great, <laughs> I'm, I'm about to say, great Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, two thousand five, man. So you you were born and raised here as well? Yeah.
1: No. Oh, yeah. You're native.
0: Two thousand five. You were native 2005 you have not been gone at all.
1: That's not, It's it's it runs deep in my veins. Um. But um, and your but your father played some blues guitar too, right?
0: My dad played blues guitar. to played a little piano, and he loved music. His dad was a juke joint guitarist blues guitars. And that's where he picked it up from. But he was, you know, totally just playing by ear and just playing around with it. And he would play these songs. And when he passed and a John Lee Hooker record came on and I listened and I I went, that's the way my dad sang. I mean, it was a trip. I was like, I said, wow, that's how Papa's now. He was, how he plays and how he bends the note and on this jazz, well, not a jazz, I don't know what it's called, but this CD that we did in 95 that it was, took me one year to record, called Three Generations of Groove, and I put it out and pulled it back. It was too hard and to do it on your own. Now I could re-release it or something, but. I have him on a tune called, Can You Tell Me? And one day I was in the studio, and the track was playing, it was two different keys. so. But when the tune went into E, it, he was just sitting there just playing the same groove over the, tr- over the track. But when he went to the E groove, which was the key he was in, I said, oh my God. He kept playing, I went and hooked up the mics and everything and put it on him, and he didn't know. I put some headphones on him, and I recorded him. So that's the only recording I have of him Hmm. on this particular tune. But if I would have known what I knew as he was going out, you know, I would have, you know, how he should have, would have, could have. But... I would have recorded that guy. He was, he was bottomland. It was like you, you can't describe it. It's like I wouldn't, you know, it, it, he would have to fit in where he get in, kind of thing. But if he would get in that slot, it was like he would wear the groove off. Matter of fact, I have his guitar in my studio now, my original studio, and his fingers, like one finger, was like this big to mine. He had the biggest hands ever. His fret, his fret, <laughs> frat, his fretboard is worn out from the acid on his finger, the wood to the fret. Like, the fret is sticking out that much now from him just sit there playing the blues, and then he'll come in the studio. Hey, wait, I need my guitar tubed up. Oh, okay, Dad. I'm in the middle of whatever. But well, it wasn't good.
1: If you're like me, it wasn't until... Um later on that I started really appreciating the blues, you know, when I got older, but yeah.
0: Yeah. It was like, it was always there for me. He loved it. And my uncles loved it. They would always say when I would attempt to play blues, they would always say, ah, well, put me in the alley. Put me in the alley. Because they knew they did all the Central Avenue jazz and blues clubs back in the, you know, mid-40s, early 50s. He would tell me about seeing Duke and Count Basie and them. And his sister had one of the um, house on 47th Street. She had one of those houses, the big houses. You know those houses like west of Central Avenue on 47th, like between Wadsworth and McKinley and all that. Those were the houses that she would house the musicians. The, man, I can't speak today the musicians in because they could stay in a hotel then. And the first hotel they could stay in was the Dunbar, you know, on Central Avenue, which is still there. It's like a historical landmark now, but that's where all the cats had to stay when they come. So they stayed at her place. Hmm. And I had a lot of stories about that. And we supposed to wrote a play about house on 47th street and all oh, that
1: was so much. Yeah. I want to ask you. So when you were coming up and, and playing the keys, I think you mentioned Herbie Hancock, but who are some of your other big influences specifically on keyboard? Uh,
0: Herbie Hancock, Ahmad Jamal, Joe Avenue. Then you get into the McCoy Tyner's and the Keith Jarrett's. You know, I would listen to and admire and try to, you know, decipher... Then when it got into like the Ramsey Lewis's and the, uh, the feel good pianist, you know, Les McCann, I tried to get a little bit from everybody. Herbie was more of the um, greatest because from him, I tried to pattern my harmonic concept afterwards. I like to hear lush, nice harmonic progression and I always shy maybe That's why sometimes, like the blues or the reggae or some of that stuff, I would, I could appreciate it into, but for me, when I go and approach music, I wouldn't do it because the harmonic structure sometimes was a little bit too straight for me. But then as I got into more popular music, then I was able to appreciate the simplicity of playing simple. Because everything that I would do, it would be more or less, eh, it doesn't, if, it, if it's not challenging, the music has to challenge me sort of thing. So when I got into the more popular music, I just tried to let the funk take me. Because funk in itself is simple, but in depth, it's complex. So it's many layers to the funk or to the blues. Or anything that we would have jazz musicians say, ah, that's easy. Ah, I can figure that out. See, we would go to some of these tunes we would listen to. No one had uh, transcribed some of these um, songs. Our Dolphin dance, for instance, you know. We'd just sit back and transcribe that ourselves. And that's what we learned when we were in school, you know, musicianship, harmony. They would teach you how to use your ear and theorize. So theory would have it: if I could figure out the bass line, you got major, minor, diminished, augmented. You got a nine, you got a flat nine, you got a raise, something, blah, blah, blah. Then you can kind of figure it out. It was—it's only twelve notes, so it is. But sometimes these guys would color the the harmonic situation so hip. I mean, I would be. It went, uh, and we didn't have the thing that we could take it and slow it down or slow it and listen to it. You listen to that at regular tempo, trying to transcribe it and listen and do it. and But it, it worked. And it, it helped me out a, and a lot. So I was able to use some of that stuff. One time I told Herbie he had a tune called I Have a Dream on the Prisoner album. So... The first chord of that song, I love that chord. It was like a D minor 11 with a 9 or something like that. And that's the first song, first chord and let's groove a half step higher. <laughs> One day I told Herbie that. I said, oh, man, you remember I Have a Dream? I took the chord and did this. And Herbie was, oh, oh. Then he went, oh. <laughs> I was talking so fast, he didn't hear what I said. And of course he heard that tune many, many times now, but E minor nine with some kind of eleven or fourth, I don't even know if it's a voicing, but it was a Herbie chord. So my chord progression, even if it's funk, has always been more complex. Phil Upchurch would tell me oh, we would do some of those tunes, he would go, Well man, it's gonna wait till you write a song and then I'm gonna come back and do it instrumentally. Because your chords are all jazz, <laughs> you know. But feel and I just ran into him at the NAMM show. You, did you ever go to one of the NAMM shows?
1: Yeah, I have not, but uh, I watch all the video clips. And um, I had Larry Dunn on one time, and he told me, you know, that I could come out there as his guest to go. And I was oh about man, to yeah, man,
0: you would go nuts, Larry. Oh my God, Larry, is such, and he has them the move endorsement. So he's out there. I see him all the time out there playing the mini moves and stuff, you know, I'll only Larry can do, but the Nam show, I was just, and that's why I run into most people. I don't see folks for a whole year, but at least once a year, I know I'll run into everybody and say, Hey, you know, catch up. It's like the best party there is.
1: Yeah. I got to get out to it. Um, <clears throat> Tell me more about "Game with the Brothers Johnson." What was it you think that kind of cinched getting that gig for you?
0: Boy, what a long story! See, this is you—you—you you, you are asking questions that are few known facts. So, like I said, my buddy Charles Mims was doing um, arrangements for Quincy. And he was rehearsing the band for Quincy to go out on that 1976 tour. And I'm in school. I'm not thinking about going on. I had missed, like, three or four gigs with different people. And it was all because I was in school. And I kept saying, now, I got to finish before I go on the road. I got to finish. I I put all this time in. I got to at least get my B.A. So... I had a son in 76 and right as I was getting raised to, to have the son and Charles knew I wasn't going to leave school, but he said, man, but you're going to have to get another job now because you got this, you got this, you got a son now, you got to go to work. And I got a gig for you with the brothers Johnson because their keyboard player, there was two keyboard players. One of the keyboard players was Nat Adderley's son, Nat Adderley Jr., and they had a gig. He missed the gig some kind of way. So they let him go because he missed the gig. You know, that's the cardinal sin on the road. If you miss a show, that's it. So he ended, he ended up going doing all those Luther Vandross records. So he 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 did very well for himself. But because of Nat missing a show, because Charles Mims was in with Quincy I did an audition. Quincy had to take one of my tapes from my band, Daybreak, listen to me playing Clavinet and Fender Rhodes. And just from that tape and Charles saying, Hey man, he can do the gig, blah blah blah, Quincy just said, Okay, he's hired. <laughs> so they gave me the music. Well no, they gave me the record. I had to transcribe the music, learn my parts and by the time I graduated, which I had like about a week and a half to prepare, I left on a Friday and Saturday, I was on the road. So I went straight from UCLA to the, to the funk, so <laughs> that, was my, that was my next schooling because then hanging around Lewis and George and then hanging around Bootsy and Parliament and Mudbone and Bernie Rowe. Bernie was, he sounded like Keith Jarrett on the piano harmonically. He would play some of the craziest stuff so we would talk about all kind of stuff and how I met Fred Wesley and Maceo and, you know, here I am on the road 23. And on our tour, George and I were the two oldest in the band. Everyone else was 19 to 22 or 21. So I'm the senior member besides George. He's like all of three weeks older than me or two weeks older than me. It, and, Wayne,
1: Wayne, just to set the um, the mood and, and time frame for listeners and viewers, um, that was 76, so the Lookout for Number One album had been a big yes. hit. And did that they was have, the beginning of the big hit. Did they have the second album out yet or not yet? No. Okay. Look out for
0: number one. When I left town, couldn't get arrested on the radio. It wasn't played. You know how you break records. So they had broke the record on the East Coast and the South. West Coast, as everything, gets everything last Fashion, it trends, the West Coast gets everything the last that's the way it comes from europe goes to new york comes so anyway when i left literally three people knew who the brothers johnson were in six weeks when i came back everyone knew
1: six weeks i'll be good to you, hit
0: i'll I'll be good to you a smash and of course my favorite record because i'm New and getting into this funk Was get the funk out my face You know that was just like My goodness And they would have their Radio you know the big radios The AKA Ghetto blasters But the ones that you had a quarter inch input into They were making them like that then So when we would be in the dressing room Lewis would plug His bass into one of those radios And just Kill it. Just, I mean, and, and plus, this is where I learned how to write more of music, too, because we would get into tracks more. Like if a track was funky, forget the lyrics and all of that. Q, on the other hand, taught me it's all about the melody. You can make the track funky on anything. It's about the melody. Then I come to realize I would hear the funkiest tracks, baddest tracks you could ever hear. But then when I hear the melody and the hooks and all that stuff put on top of it, I wouldn't like it as much Mm -hmm. because it started topsy-turvy. It's harder to make a track a hit than it is to make a melody a hit. You have a melody? So that's a whole other story as we go down this this storyline. But Look Out for Number One, Get the Funk Out of My Face, that was such a big record, and time for the Brothers Johnson. They could do no wrong. They opened up (laughs) in that year. So, okay, so that was in May. So we went through the year through December touring back and forth. We went out sometime that summer with, with Quincy and played all of Quincy's music. And then in between the show, Brothers Johnson would do their thing. And then he had this group called the Watchline Singers. That's where I met Martinette Jenkins and all these bad vocalists. And he had dancers. You know, Q had a big production. I don't know if you saw that show.
1: That was like the Body Heat or stuff like that era.
0: Stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff like that. It was 1976 episode. Simpson had wrote that one song for him and, um, Q was out there, so we did a, a nice long tour with that, just a U.S. tour, but uh, um, then we went back on the road, and of the road that year would have been my first time almost, but twice, almost meeting one, because the Emotions was on a thing with us called Take It Easy Ranch. It was the modern day of that era, Woodstock, 1976, in Maryland, at some place when we were getting there. So it would be something like Burning Man today or something like that, between Woodstock and Burning Man. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. One road to get in and get out. They had to bring everything in. And two people had died in the lake. Before we got there, I mean, it was like one of those crazy plots. And Wanda's sister, Sheila, was at the mixing console. It was the only gig that the brothers did without uniforms on. We all played with no shirts. It was 100 degrees and humidity, 110, out there, craziest gig ever. And the emotions were there. And then later that year it's when Earth, Wind & Fire was doing the Pyramid Tour. Des Moines, Iowa, and Omaha, Nebraska. Brothers Johnson, they told, you know, Maurice, I can hear Reese now. Oh man, we can tell some. We'll get the Brothers Johnson to open up. So the first night was emotions, Brothers Johnson, Earth on fire. But Earth wins. I think it was Getaway they had out right then. So they were killing, you know. The, the band was killing everything. But this is where I learned about new groups coming out with people never seen before, and they have a one or two hits. Earth Wind had several hits, and Emotions had hits. But I think this was right before, because before Best of My Love, though. Best of My Love wasn't out yet. So... Brother Johnson, come on! People going crazy. Never heard of them. And then when get the funk out my face, the crowd was standing in their seats. And you know we are just on the apron of the stage. We don't have no stage, nothing. It's just hardly any lights. Only had Super Troopers cause it was our Earth Wind stage, and all of the lights they had behind us. So we were just using Super Troopers in that. But the crowd went so crazy. The next night, oh, so after we finished that night, Earthwind took their time coming out because it was, as they would stay back with the Parliament Funkadelic days, too much pee-pee, poo-poo on the stage. Mm-hmm. They would just leave, you know, it would be all over the stage, too funky. And that's what happened that night, so Earth Wind waited, and, you know, everything we watched the show, they were, you know, killing me. I loved it, but I wasn't thinking of it like competition. This is when I was learning about the competition of the bands and the music and show business and how you gotta one up and this. Eh, just go out and play with you. Politics, do. I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, oh Paul. My God. But anyway, the next night, Brothers Johnson went first. Then the emotions. Then Earth Wind. And afterwards, we get word back that Maurice had said. They will never be on another show of ours ever again. (laughs) And it wasn't because he didn't like them or nothing like that. It was nothing to do with none of that. It was about the business of show business. When you put a show together, you want to build it to where no one out does. I've seen cats come and do top 40 and blow away um, a headliner. Expected the headliner got a big name but only have two hits. And then the the warm-up band plays top 20. Say so they go through Rock With You, uh, Rick James, uh, Ohio Player. They just start playing hit up the hit up the hit. And everybody, you know, they're getting warmed up. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Then the band that you come to see comes on. First, they got to get through some of their, well, this is not a hit, but it's a nice song, you know. And I've seen people get blown out the water. Then they, and then when the audience get tired, what do they do? They leave. And oh, the that's like playing, why
1: a lot of the bands I, play play um, music that's not that great over the PA too before they come out.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. You got to have it set. It's a science. It's a science to that. And I've learned so. I learned so much about that in just that first year, 1976. So that was my master's, you know, from my BA. So I took a one-year course, crash course in mastering with Q and all that and Q was brilliant. I seen a lot of things and we hung for those years and actually that was my first record I ever put out was with Quincy. And it got the first record I ever did, got nominated for a Grammy. It was on a platinum record. I mean, all first-time kind okay. of things, which is, you know, that doesn't happen.
1: Was, was Blam the first one you were on, or were you on a record before Blam?
0: I was just on Blam. That was Blam and the tune Streetways. that was up against Earth, Wind & Fire, hmm. who Earth, Wind & Fire won the Grammy that year, right? But it was the fact that all of these little... Themes kept going around. I saw Sheila in 76 then I Wanda was on the, that show. I didn't never meet them that night or anything but uh, um, it was so close-knit and then when we um, did all get together like in 78, then I had matured a whole nother level, Hanging with Q, seeing what to do, what not to do. And then I got to meet Wanda, and then we threatened every, you know, after we met each other, I mean, got to know each other a little bit. We threatened on writing together. But by that time, I was done with the road. I was praying to come off the road. I had learned what I needed to know, and I saw that being a musician on the road necessarily wasn't the best place for a musician to be. If you were at home writing and producing and honing your craft, that would be more lucrative for me anyway for that time because I didn't want to be an artist. I didn't want to... That wasn't into my thing, you know, going out being a star. I didn't want that because I saw what happened to Louis and George, especially George. He couldn't go anywhere Cause he was too well recognized when you hey i told him if i want to wish anything on somebody i wish fame on them <laughs> that, that would be the one i didn't say money just, just let me let you be famous boom just drop it on them and just see how their world just so that wasn't for me but Wayne, when we did
1: go out sorry can you just Take a, a, a moment to share what Lewis Johnson was like as a force of nature on the base.
0: <laughs> well, Lewis Johnson, he was like my baby brother, you know, because he was an innocent soul. Okay? He wasn't like. He was, the best way I can describe that boy is innocent. And whatever he put his mind to do, he was going to do it, okay? He was definitely incredible bassist, and he would come over to my studio. It was just, he and I, Ricky Lawson, another bad drummer that was with the brothers when I got with them, he ended up starting a group. Uh, yellow Jackets, and um, we would be back in the back jamming. And different bass players, a lot of musicians from those days would come around and look back there, and they would try to understand what Lewis was doing. Because Lewis' technique, you could have two bass players play at the same bass, and Lewis is going to sound way different than the other bass player. It was his approach to the instrument. I guess it's where he put his hands to the pickups. It was so many different things of that nature by Lewis. But he was definitely a one-of-a-kind. He was a natural. You could not teach a Lewis Johnson. You can definitely imitate a Lewis Johnson. But when we would go to Japan and stuff, they were... I mean, they had Elvis down. They had everybody down. And the first time we went to the second time, the cat started to get Lewis down. They didn't have him down because Lewis kept morphing. He wouldn't stay the Lewis from 78 to the Lewis in 1980. He was different. Well, especially from 76 to 80, he was different. And Lewis, you know, in his innocence, we would be out on the road and he would say, man, Quincy have all these bad bass players playing all these tracks, and then when I get home, we get off the road. Q would say, "Okay, Louis, I have some songs you gotta play on these tones. And he said, and "Q would erase all of these bass players because number one, Q would have Louis by himself. Louis come in, do the thing. Louis learn the song, and then Louis puts Louis on there, which is the part." you can't write on the page. You can't write the, 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 the interpretation of the musician. You can get close of documenting something that you want and you know what you want like any arranger. But when you get a musician like a Lewis and you get him to know the fundamentals of the song, then you say, okay, Lou, go forward. And you hear on all those Michael Jackson records if that's any indication, because some of those records he just heard and came in, unlike when he's on his own records and he's doing what he does, and listen at how he lays those grooves and sounds sometimes even differently than he sounds on the Brother Johnson records. But he could do whatever he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. Plus, he could play drums, and he was stupidly bad on guitar. hmm Okay, and who did he sound like? Hendrix. (laughs) Another one, you know. But he was just a a gifted musician, and I talked to him before his before he left us, and I was trying to get him over, just like so many, like his cousin Alex Ware. Alex ended up leaving the brothers and going with Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club and all that so that oh that's Alex uh, that, but when I yeah, but when I heard that I knew it, he had a rhythm guitar that was, I haven't met, not a cat he is a unique, and you know we got you know K, Marlo Henderson and Roland Batista. Roland and Marlo were my two favorite, when I would call double guitars back in the like, the, the end of the 70s, man, those are my two favorites of all times. But Lewis himself, man, he could fit into any situation that required being on the other side of that. And Quincy, Quincy knew that. He spotted it, and that's how he used it. That's why Lewis is on so many of those Records that you heard Quincy produced back in those days, especially not even including like some of the George Benson and all that. I mean, he did more records than I had realized he was on. That's how much. And we would just be playing video games and stuff because he was a serious arcades man, right? So they had the Foxfield Mall, which is down where you know, and he lived right there in Ladera.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we would go and we would hang out. He would say, Way. Let's go to the arcade. And I loved the arcade back then. Some kind of way like candy. I grew out of the arcade stuff. I don't know. But I guess I might pick it back up because I know when that one um, game, I don't know if you ever tried to play it called Halo.
1: Halo. Yeah. Sort of like a war game. Yeah.
0: My son, as a young kid, he played Halo with me and I couldn't, that was the only game I couldn't figure out. So from that time, I really couldn't figure out. But Lewis could figure out all those games and we're over there playing when they had the submarine game, Sea Wolf, that was one of my, I thought I was doing something, man. And this the one with all the Galaxian and all of those, we'll play double teams on that, so.
1: Yeah, what can I say,
0: man? Lewis was an exceptional, creative, I don't know, I can't say underrated, but in terms of the musicians that, you know, we, we look at a lot of different bases out there. We I have a lot of our favorites. But in terms of funk, or, I mean, I've had Lewis play some jazz, because he loved jazz, too. He wanted to get into that a. Hey, that's how they tune Street streetway we were over at my at my studio the the, the song that Jerry Hay had that Jerry Hay had put the, the trumpets on that was my section we had been playing that on the road all that year 77 years I had written that we played it and Lewis knew it so when we got to my house one day Lewis said wayne I want to play some jazz and he started going do 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 do, 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 do. I said, Boo, I like that. Keep playing, keep playing. Then I went over to the fender road and they started playing that little thing, and that's all we had. So we took that section and took my two sections and we put them all together, and that's how the beginning of that song. Then we had Ricky come over and we all played it together. We put it on tape. Cue her to tape. And we were looking for another instrumental that year. Q was trying to change it around. Oh, what about this? What about that? And I was like, it is what it is. I mean, it, it feels good. And he came to the thing. After we changed it around, he went back and said, all right, put it back like it was. And then we had Harvey Mason, Lewis, George, and Alex, and myself. And that was the, Quincy had us up all night long that night. We did a session all night. He recorded the Blam album, the tracks, in one night. (laughs) All the, the whole album in one night. We were getting ready to go on, we had to go on tour the next day or the two days afterwards. And he had to deliver this record. And I didn't understand what was happening. So he had David Foster, and he had Harvey Mason. Well, no, Harvey brought David. He said, I got a guy, you're going to like him, David Foster, just in from Canada, and Harvey. And Harvey's the one that brought Sea Wind from Hawaii. So Harvey brought a lot of cats to town as well. But C. Wind and David Foster, uh, Harvey had a lot to do with. And then they did the whole record. And one night, and we got the street Streetways, and I did my little part, and the rest was history. The record went platinum without a real single. The Blam album was the only record out of those
1: It didn't have, yeah, Amy, Amy Funkin' Now was like an R&B hit, biggest. but they didn't have a crossover, yeah.
0: Uh-uh, uh-uh, it wasn't a crossover. And that's what Q was going for. He was going for the crossover, so he had it without Be Good to You, he had it with Strawberry, and Strawberry, I thought another song was stronger than Strawberry. And he was like, oh, no, it's oh, that melody, man. You know, that do, 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 singing out a little part. He's like, man, that's a hit, that's a hit. Sure enough. And then the next record afterwards is when I left the band and I came back was Stomp, the fourth record. And after that, oh, man, what a, what a trip. And we only knew what we know. We only know so much. And um, the brothers felt like they wanted to go on their own and produce themselves as opposed to Q because, number one, Q made it look easy. That's the next thing. You can do something so well, you can make it look easy that everyone thinks they can do it. So, And everyone has a record in them that's for sure, but to be of certain caliber, uh, Q said, When and what? They wanted to leave. So Q called me, and he was deeply, he was like hurt. Oh man, those are like my little brothers, and you know, blah, blah, blah. So, and it was a learning experience for me, and I was just trying to Come up with Wanda and I were doing. We were just writing, and I think we had maybe, so that was 80s, so or maybe we was just doing less groove, something of that nature. Maybe we're just after less groove while this happened. So it was after the Blam album, which I guess came out in 80, I'm not sure. I
1: think 80s, right?
0: And was it 80?
1: I'm pretty sure 80.
0: 80, okay. So the next record the brothers produced on themselves and as quincy would tell me he would say one guy would say what does it take to make a great producer and instead of listening well first you better get the melody right and then you should do this quincy wrote a one line he said for that era 25 years experience (laughs) that's all he said and i went oh yeah you you got that right, Q, and the rest is history. So, you know, but those were the days, man. I wasn't
1: those sure. I, days, I, I wasn't sure, uh, Wayne. I thought maybe uh, Quincy was didn't have as much time for them anymore because he was moving on to Michael Jackson and stuff like that.
0: Unfortunately, and I'm not being the the, the only reason why I know this because I know George and Lewis very well, and they told me what they wanted to do, and at the time, Quincy and I were hanging, because Quincy called me when I got married in 79, and then, uh, you know, so 80, so all that was in that era, 1980, 81, and I had left the brothers, because one, and I started doing the Patty LaBelle, and we did this, and we were on the road, and at the end of that tour, I said, ah, I can do this, so they went and hired two piano players, two keyboard players, and for some reason, whatever, it wasn't working out for them. They said, "Oh man, Wayne could do this, and he just one keyboard player." So they called me back, and yeah, so it had to be eighty eighty one. This was all happening because we hadn't moved into this house yet, and then <laughs> George say, "Do you know Stomp yet?" Say, man, I got stuff, I got the strings in one hand, I got the roads in the other hand, and George say, like, Oh man, so their manager, the um uh, the Fritz and Hartleys, they had Chicago and Rufus and them. They called and we made a deal. That's how I went back on the road. We made a deal and it was cool for me, and basically I just said, I'll just be a side man to where y'all can use me like I'm the crew or something or independent contractor. Don't pay me in salary, because you got to write that off. Pay me in per diem. So they would just pay me in per diem, and it would just be rolled off. So it was like, I don't even know if they had me listed as a musician anymore. So that was that was how I went back with the brothers. They had me like under the the, the the carpet so to say